We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Rick Rule, investor and speculator and founder and CEO of Rule Investment Media. How are you today, Rick? Very well, Tom. Thank you. The better for being on with you. Well, you know, this is this is going to be part two of our Q&A that we had with you. Of course, in the first one, we covered a, a lot of different topics. Um, we got your thoughts on on juniors and fresh capital, NPV reports, your, your rating system, um, Eric's failure tolerance, risk, recession and equity risk, why you have to own gold, um, boot camp and education and banking. We we got a little bit of feedback. Uh, I went through all the comments after the last one. I, I just wanted to touch on quickly, if you could recommend a book that teaches uh, a first solid understanding of the banking business. Um, I'd have to put my mind to that. Off the top of my head, the answer is no. Uh, I always suggest that People start their investing education by reading The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. Uh, I should say that I'm not actually answering the question. This is not basically a banking tome, <laughs> but more uh, a question about how to make yourself an effective deployer of capital. My suspicion is that if every uh, banking examiner and every banking executive read uh, and understood and abided by uh, the intelligent investor that we would have a better economy and much, much, much stronger banks. Banking is really about blocking and tackling. Uh, it is about safeguarding uh, investors' deposits, uh, deploying capital, uh, and uh, helping the consumers of those capitals, the borrowers, allocate that capital correctly. That's really all it's about. If you get fancy in banking, as an example, if you try to if you try to put on time spreads where you're borrowing short at low rates and lending long uh, at fixed rates, uh, you tend once a decade to blow up <laughs> something that we've just been through and something that we went through before with the savings and loan cycle. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I would suspect that a banker who tries to service borrowers from a thousand industries actually services borrowers from none because he or she doesn't understand the collateral well enough to safeguard the capital well enough to become a reliable supplier of capital to borrowers or uh, a reliable source of income for depositors. So I really think that banking is about blocking and tackling. Perhaps at some future time, Tom, if your audience would like it, uh, we can do a half an hour or an hour on the fundamentals of banking, uh, mm -hmm. how to be a bank investor, how to be a depositor, how to be a borrower. They're really very simple things when you think about it. Uh, unfortunately, I guess for the world, most people would rather think about movies and baseball than banking. Uh, mm -hmm. I, by contrast, prefer banking. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, of course, it's a, it's a subject that we should be thinking more about. I, I mean, among other things, right? But it's, it's something that is often just left to the experts, right? And, um, Often, I think having to educate ourselves on on something that we feel that should be fundamentally safe isn't always um, a high priority. Uh, uh, I hope people listen to what you just said two or three times. 
The idea that you suborn responsibility for your future to so-called experts supposes, first of all, that you have determined that they are, in fact, experts. Many people, unfortunately, would like to consign responsibility for their financial freedom to other people, which is a mistake. There are plenty of people who are willing to take control of your financial freedom for their benefit, not for yours. Uh, it is up to you in every circumstance uh, to educate yourself enough that you can make reasonably intelligent decisions with regards to you, your future and your family's future. Absolutely, Rick. And I mean, that that applies to so many different subjects. And I think it always comes that back down to do your own due diligence, right? Correct. Correct. So, it's okay uh, to employ, if you will, contractors, uh, to employ people who help you with certain aspects of your financial well-being, just like it's okay to hire a carpenter to help build your house. Mm -hmm. But you have to have enough of an education that you can hire, parenthetically, the right carpenter. Uh, you can give that carpenter the correct job description. <laughs> and the correct and plans. Can, <laughs> correct. Uh, correct. I mean, this is this is not rocket science, but uh, <clears throat> sadly, the vast majority of people fail even this simple test. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so last time, Rick, we kind of wrapped up with the, the question of the likelihood of the Shanghai Physical Exchange taking over the COMEX for price discovery in the next five years. Um, we have a, a kind of a related question. If you think that the physical market will dictate price discovery over the paper precious metals market anytime soon? Uh, anytime soon, no, because the volumes that trade on the futures market are so extraordinary relative to at least the reported volumes on the physicals market. I think there will continue to be an interplay between the two markets. I'm a, a believer in technology, and I'm an increasingly less halting believer in the fact that 10 years from now, the gold market will consist largely of digitized gold tokens, uh, and that uh, gold will, will trade both in terms of the futures market uh, and in terms of the physicals market in a tokenized or coin fashion. Uh, and my hope is that there will be competing coins. My hope is that Consumers like myself will have a, a variety of product offerings in gold coins with varying degrees of liquidity, varying degrees of security, so that investors can pick and choose among platforms that serve them the best. My suspicion is that this tokenization of gold and the fractionalization of a payment system in gold will go a long way to restoring gold to its original purpose which was both a store of value and a medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could trade uh, coins or tokens that were redeemable for physical in whole or in part with much less friction than, the, than occurs in the current market, uh, I think ushers in an era where gold becomes truly competitive with things like the US dollar, the Canadian dollar, or the euro. And I look forward to that. I think it'll happen easily within my lifetime. And for the record, I'm 70. Mm -hmm. I read that the UAE no longer accept dollars, accepts dollars for oil. What does Rick think of that? Does he think that other OPEC plus oil exporters will do the same? What does that uh, look like? I, oh. that, that isn't true to begin with. Uh, the UAE doesn't require any longer U.S. dollars to pay for oil. That doesn't mean that 
if a fundamentally bankrupt country with a non-convertible currency attempted to pay for oil from the UAE in their own non-convertible currency, that the UAE would accept it in preference to uh, dollars. Uh, if the Chinese were to go to pay for oil in Remnimbi, uh, and if there was su suitable demand in internal UAE markets for Remnimbi, as an example, to pay for imports from China, certainly that would be acceptable. If a counterparty could be found uh, for the currency accepted, uh, as an example, small amounts of Russian rubles, uh, I'm, I'm certain that would be acceptable too. But I think what you'll find in oil markets is that trades for crude from almost any country on the planet, including Russia, <laughs> will continue to settle, uh, at least surreptitiously, in the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar, for all its faults, is easily the deepest, the most liquid, and the most transparent medium of exchange market on the planet by an order of magnitude. Yeah, just from that, you know, focus alone, it seems to really highlight the idea that the, the there's a real challenge to replace the U.S. dollar anytime soon. There is. And it's worthy to note that some of the other currencies which the UAE will accept, uh, reasonably liquid currencies like the renminbi, like the yuan, uh, settle themselves or at least are priced themselves <laughs> in U.S. dollars. Uh, the U.S. dollar, uh, despite all of its challenges, despite the insane politicization of the U.S. dollar imposed by the U.S. government, despite all of our best efforts to wreck the dollar, uh, the dollar is still even the reference point, not merely the medium of exchange. Other mediums of exchange are priced in global markets and in the futures markets in dollars. Rick, I'd like to move on to uh, basically the the subject of silver. We're we're going to cover um, some silver, some nationalization questions, uh, uranium, um, and then some some of some of your thoughts on other at asset classes. So we got a question here from Bix Weir actually. If silver used in solar panels are averaging twenty milligrams per watt IEA data, and the twenty twenty three solar in installations are set four hundred thirteen gigawatts. Where did they get 291 million ounces used in the 2023 solar installations? And why is the Silver Institute lying about the real numbers for silver used in solar energy? Uh, let's take the questions in reverse order. With regards to the last question, why is the Silver Institute lying? I don't know. And I'm not, frankly, as familiar with the numbers as the person asking the questions. So <laughs> I'm going to have to defer to that. Uh, there is a substantial above-ground inventory, silver. It's important to know that. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows the size of it. There are various guesses. But simply the fact that physical silver has been used as a store of value, uh, a, a non-governmental store of value, particularly in South Asia and the Middle East for a long time. Uh, and because that silver uh, has been used outside of government systems, it's very difficult to understand, as an example, how much silver inventory exists in private hands mm -hmm. in South Asia, in South Asia, pardon me, and uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. It's important to note, too, that too many people who believe in an eminent silver squeeze look in terms of supply at silver mine supply. It's very worthy to note that at best new mine supply from silver mine 
accounts for 20% of global silver production. The the rest coming from uh, byproduct production and base metals and from a very robust uh, scrap and recycling market. One of the interesting things about solar uh, has been thus far that silver is so cheap that a recycling market hasn't developed in the most part with regards to silver that has been used on solar panels. Mm-hmm. It's simply at 25 US dollars isn't economic in most applications to recover the silver uh, from scrapped uh, solar panels. It's important to note too, that silver at this price is so cheap that the industry has very little incentive to develop a substitute uh, for silver in various applications that require uh, reflectivity uh, and frankly, the ductile properties, the fact that you can spread silver so thinly and get a uniform reflective surface. Uh, The point of all this simply is that when you go through year after year after year of supply deficit, at the same time that silver speculators are getting more and more and more disappointed, (laughs) uh, that pop in silver that attracted them is getting closer to occurring. People want certainty. Unfortunately, with regards to silver, certainty is in short supply. Nobody really understands what the above ground inventory is because so much of it is privately (laughs) and closely held. Nobody understands very much about the price points that will be necessary to uh, encourage substitution should the silver price go up. The silver speculator, uh, because as an example, during the Reddit silver squeeze, had such high and immediate expectations, looks at this uncertainty and they look at the life, like the, pardon me, the lack of um, price movement and they suggest to themselves that silver is dead. That's wrong. Uh, what is right is that their time expectations, their time preferences are not a fundamental. <laughs> They're a personal preference. Um I guess it's easy at age 70, uh, having been rewarded uh, once every 10 or 15 years for 50 years by extravagant, uh, exorbitant, luxurious moves in the price of silver and silver securities that I can be very, very, very sanguine. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note, too, I love assets that are hated. So to the extent that silver has disappointed its adherents, Every time I read a negative post about silver, particularly from somebody who is posting about it positively two years ago or three years ago, when it was at least perceived to be coming back into fashion, I'm delighted by the hate. Uh, I'm delighted by the hate because I keep my love in perspective. My suspicion is that if the silver price fell, from $25 to say $15, if there was a cataclysmic decline in silver, that I would probably end up having five, six, or 7% of my net worth in silver. Uh, My uh, target allocation at present is 2.5%. That says a whole bunch of things. The first thing it says is that to the extent I'm wrong, it doesn't change my decision as to what to have for breakfast. But it's such a wonderfully disconnected bet. If I'm right, 2.5% of my portfolio becomes 25% of my portfolio. That's the kind of move that you see particularly in the silver equities when they finally come around to moving. 
when people ask me when that's going to occur, I'm forced to say uh, neither I nor any other supposed expert has any idea whatsoever. Uh, and if that lack of certainty is too unsettling for you, you know, get a job with a post office or something. <laughs> Do something that you're temperamentally suited to. I think your your comments are are very reminiscent of what you said about gold in, in part one, right? You have to own it because it hasn't performed yet. And I, I think that that also applies here. Uh, probably more so because I don't regard silver uh, as an insurance asset. Uh, I own gold. Uh, I own gold because I'm afraid it's going to do well. I own gold to preserve my wealth. I own silver as a speculator. I remember the extraordinary move in silver and silver equities in the 1970s. I, I remember a move in the metal from a buck and a half to $50. I, remove, I remember a move in Coeur d'Alene mines, which sadly I didn't participate in, from a dime to $65. Now, granted, that move in the 1970s was the most dramatic in anybody's living memory. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the moves that we enjoyed in the early part of the decades, uh, in the early part of the decade of the 90s, uh, not uh, halcyon time for precious metals, uh, was certainly one for the record books, too. I remember the price of silver going from $4, if my memory serves me correct, uh, back to almost $50 again, but much more dramatically. Uh, I, I remember, and I did participate in a major way, silver standard going from 72 cents to $45. Pan American silver going from 50 cents to plus $40. These are truly extravagant moves. And people who have the financial wherewithal to risk uh, a decline, risk being wrong, uh, and that have the psychological wherewithal to handle the sort of dormant periods where silver doesn't make you anything but costs you a lot. Those people, uh, and I've known, well, I am one, and I've known several, uh, stand to enjoy absolutely life-changing experiences by utilizing a fairly small proportion uh, of their overall uh, portfolio or liquidity. I, I mean, think about the idea that a fairly young person has with, say, a $100,000 portfolio. Uh, and, and that person allocates only $5,000 to silver. And then they experience the sort of moves that silver has exhibited at least three times in my career. That $5,000 becomes $50,000, at least pre-tax, uh, which is to say somebody experiences a marked change in their portfolio for a fairly small financial allocation. That's why I own silver. I, I, I don't, frankly, this is going to sound very arrogant. I frankly don't need the money, but I enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. uh, most of, I mean, the vast majority of my estate uh, is going to go to philanthropy. Uh, and I intend to leave a lot. <laughs> silver will help me. Rick, do you think that there's any risk of silver miners being left behind if the rally remains gold-centric? Zero. Uh, in my experience, and I don't know why it is, gold is the first mover, but when the precious metals narrative becomes established by gold, 
and the generalist money begins to come into the precious metal space because the population of silver stocks is so small and because the price movements that are exhibited by the commodities that they uh, produce is so great. The upside in silver stocks is simply mind-boggling when it occurs. Mm -hmm. If we head into a precious metals bull market in 2024, note that I said if, not when, uh, what will happen is that that precious metals bull market will absolutely positively be led by gold. I don't know why this is. I just know that it always is. Uh, and when the generalist money is attracted by the precious metals narrative, silver, perhaps because of its lower unit of exchange, unit value, will move further and will move faster. And the silver equities, which we've discussed many times before on Palisade Radio, don't have the market cap to contain all of the generalist money that will come in the space. Mm -hmm. There will be lots of newly minted silver companies, so-called silver companies, silver companies in quotes, you know, uh, companies that failed as marijuana companies, and then they failed as lithium companies. Perhaps they had some dalliance in medical technology along the way, you know, the lame, the halt, and the blind. Uh, there will be lots of those. And some of those, like many successful scams, uh, will do okay in the market. But what I'm talking about are the real silver companies. Uh, the companies that actually discover and develop economic deposits that produce silver to profit that will deliver real economic value in the face of price escalations in silver. Those are the ones that I'm talking about. The ones that have less downside, perhaps a little bit less upside than the flagrant scams, uh, but certainly where the juxtaposition of risk to reward is more sane. Rick, how realistic do you think the threat of nationalization for Mexican and Canadian silver miners is? I think fairly high. Uh, I lived through the decade of the 70s, uh, and during a period of rapid escalation in commodity prices, governments were caught flat-footed. They didn't believe uh, in the value of their own resource legacy. After, ironically, the resource prices had peaked, in the latter part of the 1970s, the early part of the 1980s, the, co the countries got around to nationalizing them, in other words, stealing them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that you'll see that this time. Uh, you know, certainly uh, Mexico, as an example, didn't develop its oil industry itself. Uh, it allowed people who knew what they were doing to develop the oil industry. When the oil industry had value to steal, of course, the Mexican government stole it. Mm -hmm. Governments aren't very smart but they are smart enough not to steal something that doesn't generate them any immediate disposable income. And I suspect that if you saw the silver price go to 75 or 80 nominal U.S. dollars per ounce, that there would be a, a, tend to, a trend toward nationalization. I don't know that the, that the nationalization anymore will be overt, that they will steal it the way the Mexican government stole the oil industry. Mm -hmm. What I suspect will happen, and I think it'll happen in the United States, too, is that there will be direct and indirect ta uh, taxation, that they will steal the industry uh, on the installment plan, uh, that they will put in place a severance payment on top of uh, tax, that they will put in place a super profits tax or excess profits tax like the U.S. and Canadian governments did in the oil and gas industry. Remember that the real, the real specialists at nationalization uh, haven't been the Mexicans or the Venezuelans. They're pretty clumsy. 
the real uh, cynical masterminds of nationalization have been the United States and Canada and the EU, the subtle politicians who steal uh, on a gradualist basin, basis, the people who say, yes, there's an income tax, there's a severance tax, there's a payroll tax, there's a royalty, uh, but we also want you to set aside money for the community. And by the way, we will determine who the community is and how it gets spent. There is a truism as an example that the industry has had to fight in places like Mexico and Peru, where the social benefit from mining all goes to the capital, and the regions literally get the shaft. The areas that produce the wealth uh, that don't have any political power end up generating the, the, the wealth, but they have no water, they have no roads, they have no schools, they have the impact of mining, but none of the benefit. The benefit gets stolen by the center in almost every circumstance. Rick, what do you think the risk of the Canadian government nationalizing the, the PSLV is? I think zero. Governments don't have to involve themselves in direct, honest theft. People have asked me for years, will the government nationalize my IRA? No, they'll change the marginal tax rate on the distribution from your IRA. In other words, they will steal from you. Uh, in a sort of an elliptical fashion, uh, they will not, uh, I think, uh, repeat the mistakes of the Roosevelt era, uh, where they came in really truly as jackbooted thugs. They don't need to do that anymore. If they raise marginal tax rates, particularly if they raise marginal tax rates on the investing class, which is to say that class of people which can afford to pay them, <laughs> it becomes very popular. If the Department of National Revenue in Canada went to nationalize PSLV, or if they went to nationalize RRSPs, as an example. Uh, Canadians across the length and breadth of the, the country, when they were stolen from directly, would be very, very, very angry. But the Trudeau government has proven that if you raise marginal tax rates, if you tax indirectly, if you tax in places where people don't see it, as an example, in heating oil or gasoline, uh, that you can get away with an awful lot. And in fact, you could be very, very, very popular because the perception among taxpayers is that the government is screwing somebody else, not them. The reality is very different. But of course, screwing other people is why democracy works. That's very, very well said, Rick. <laughs> do, you, do you have any issue with BlackRock owning 7.69% of, of the PSLB? Well, BlackRock doesn't, first of all. The company doesn't. BlackRock is a pool of capital on behalf of investors. BlackRock doesn't own, as an entity, 6.7% of PSLV any more than Sprott owns 6.7% of PSLV. BlackRock manages funds on behalf of shareholders. Those shareholders own the PSLV. Uh, so to say that BlackRock itself, think at all, control 6.7% of PSLV is erroneous, is as erroneous as saying that Sprott owns it. They don't. Mm -hmm. They own it as proxies on behalf of, uh, in this case, hundreds of thousands of shareholders. And I have no issue with that at all. Um, I don't have an issue with the uh, Norges Bank, uh, which is the sovereign wealth fund for the people of Norway. 
uh, when their ownership edges up, it isn't actually this bank that, well, I guess the bank does own it, but they own it on behalf of millions and millions of Norwegians. Mm-hmm. I don't have an objection necessarily if Fidelity was to own 5% because the Johnson family, the people who control Fidelity, don't actually own the funds that have invested in it. The whole nature of institutional shareholder capital, capital uh, capitalism is uh, diffuse ownership through society. And while I have uh, some objections to the way that that's regulated, the idea that a group of people who have lives, <laughs> people who want to focus on gardening or books or their grandchildren, consign uh, some aspect of the management of their fortune to people like BlackRock or Sprott is something that I don't think is particularly bad. Mm-hmm. Rick, I know uh, Eric Sprott has has done a couple interviews around the idea of naked short selling in Canada yep. here. So is it a problem in Canada and should there be a class action lawsuit in response? Uh, Eric and I differ on this. Uh, and I need to say often when Eric and I differ, he's right and I'm wrong. <laughs> As is evident from the disparate nature of our net worth, if you put our net worths on a balance beam, uh, I would not be on the heavy side. I'd be on the light side. So uh, let's do that. There are suggestions, which I won't confirm or deny, that earlier in my career, uh, in addition to being a fiduciary, I was a promoter. If that is true, I'm not confirming or denying it. If that is true, there is nothing in the world that would have made me happier than having a big, fat, short position against something I was long. Because when somebody is short, you have a buyer built in. The price that they buy at is a function between they and you and the asset in the aftermarket. There are suggestions, uh, and I suspect that they're right that the early market success that we enjoyed in names like First Quantum and BEMA, Arizona Star, Silver Standard, Pan American, all those stocks in the early part of the decade that uh, it is alleged that I helped make markets in, uh, it, it is a truism that none of those stocks would have gone as high as they went or financed in equity markets as efficiently as they did without big short positions against them. Shorts that bet wrong and shorts that got mashed. So from my own viewpoint, the shorts perform at least two useful functions. The first thing is that the shorts uh, price scams way better than the regulators ever could because the short syndicates, be they in Jersey City, be they on House Street, be they on Bay Street, uh, have a much better sense of valuation and market than the regulators do. The regulators are too busy attending banquets and stuff like that. Uh, so I think the shorts p- perform a social function in terms of price uh, pointing out price inefficiencies in the market. From my own viewpoint, as I say, there is nothing I like more than having a big position in something where I'm fairly sure I'm right and having a big short position against me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if I can prove to the market I'm right, that's a whole bunch of stock that has already been sold and needs to be bought. The people who complain about naked shorts are almost never the Lundins, the Friedlands, 
the Clive Johnsons, the Bob Quartermains, uh, they're almost always, and I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, the lame, the halt, and the blind, the people who can't raise money in a free market. There have been lots of private placements in the last 12 months where uh, allegedly in the market there was no capital available that I couldn't get a full allocation of uh, or where the terms and conditions around the private placement weren't, from my point of view, attractive. There isn't a shortage of capital in speculative markets. There is a shortage of receptacles, uh, companies that really deserve to be capitalized. Mm -hmm. And too many of the people who inveil against the um, naked shorts uh, are people who run companies that are non-viable. People who would prefer dumb money to smart money. I know that's going to give me an awful lot of hate, but that's okay. Uh, what I say happens to be true. Uh, when Eric uh, is distressed about the structural nature of the shorts, uh, and I understand his frustration, when Eric, you, you know, when he builds a 12 or 14% position in something, uh, an early stage company, its subsequent cost of capital is important to him. What I would suggest that Eric do, rather than look for help from the regulators, is go to work on the markets. Uh, if Eric decided that he had been wrongfully short or somebody had wrongfully shorted a position like Abra Silver, where uh, he owns 12%, if Eric decided to go to work once a week on social media, pointing out the uh, attributes uh, of Abra Silver and inviting those people who were short Abra Silver to engage in a one-on-one, -on -one, mano o mano debate with him on Palisade Radio uh, about Abra Silver, he would absolutely, positively crush those shorts to smithereens. If they showed up, he'd kill them. If they didn't show up, there'd be more buyers than sellers. In other words, a good old-fashioned short squeeze. Mm -hmm. It is alleged that I used to engage in just that activity, just that activity in the period sort of 1988 to 1994, which, of course, I won't confirm or deny. Well, you know, there's there was a question kind of directly related to that. Do you consider yourself more of a speculator or a salesman, Rick? Oh, much more a speculator. Uh, there was a time when people that had the ability to move markets were mostly consumers of capital. Uh, that is to say, I was very useful uh, as an indirect mouthpiece for Adolf Lundin and Lucas Lundin, Robert Friedland, all of those people. And certainly my ability to get on and my willingness to get on uh, outlets like your own has meant that very often in my 50-year career, I have been allocated larger positions <laughs> earlier on than I otherwise would have. Mm. Uh, and so I get that. There is an interplay for me personally between being uh, a speculator and being uh, a third-party spokesperson. What I think other folks need to recognize, and this will sound anti-humble too, but I've picked fairly well. 
which is to say uh, many of the things that I was engaged in saying nice things about deserved to have nice things said about them. You know, Bima going from 10 cents to $15, it didn't do that because I was a good salesman. I happened to believe in Clive Johnson. I happened to look at the assets around Bima. I happened to believe that its success was a matter of time. Certainly, I believe that my ability to talk about it lowered their cost of capital. And given that I was a major shareholder, that was worthwhile. Mm -hmm. But the very fact that I have as much credibility as I have, despite some fairly obvious mistakes and failures over time, suggests that uh, in addition to being able to communicate a story well, I can analyze a story pretty well, too. And I think the legitimacy that I enjoy today has much more to do with the fact that I selected good stocks and much less to do with the fact that I communicated a good story well. Mm-hmm. Rick, let's move on to some uranium questions here. Um, this, this listener wanted to kind of get your your overall impression of what the what the uranium market outlook for you looks like for, let's say, the next six to 10 years um, based on the the fueling cycle as more of these plants come online? 10 years, I can't tell you uh, because that'll really be a function of what the uranium price does and how much production that price incents mm-hmm. in the five or six year time frame. I need to say with regards to the uranium equities in the very, very near term, the easy money has been made. Uh, That isn't what people want to hear. When the price of something triples uh, and when that price move justifies the narrative, people want to come into a story when it's comfortable. You make money coming into a story when it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the easy money has been made. Uranium and uranium stocks have gone from being despised, hated, uh, to being liked. Uh, And that move uh, is where the easy money has been made. The real money is going to be made now. Uh, Uranium, spot uranium prices, by the way, it's just on fire. Uh, Spot uranium prices at this this price level are sufficient to incent new production. But they won't incent it right away. You have to discover this stuff. You have to finance this stuff. You have to permit this stuff. You have to develop it. I I suspect that you won't see greenfield production, new production uh, come on. Uh, to any important extent for five or six years, Mm -hmm. which means that in the near term, while we still have a structural deficit in supply, that the uranium price can go higher. I'm not saying it will go higher. I'm just saying that it can go higher. What's important to note now is that much more of the uranium market, much more of the transactions take place on the term market than the spot market. And this is important. This gives both the utilities who are buying the uranium and the miners who are selling uranium at least some form of price certainty over the five-year and 10-year time frame. This is important for the power plant developers because they're borrowing to build a new plant $5 billion. Mm-hmm. And the lender wants to make sure that they have access to enough uranium to amortize the loan. And they want some sense as to what price they'll pay for the uranium so that they can enter into power supply contracts, knowing something about the cost of generating the power. But this is much more important for the miner. The miner uh, with uh, 60 or 70% of her production, his or her production uh, in the term market, uh, means that they have price certainty. Uh, 
with regards to their production. They're not subject to the tyranny uh, of the overnight or spot market. And with this visibility, provided at least that the uh, purchasing counterparty is uh, of investment-grade credit quality, Southern Company, Duke Power, China General Nuclear, somebody like that, what it means is that you can literally take the power purchase agreement, or, or, or pardon me, the uranium purchase agreement, to the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this visibility, this certainty with regards to at least the top line revenue means that deposits that 10 years ago wouldn't have been able to be financed can be financed today. That's going to be very important. You're going to see this in names as big as Cameco. You're going to see Cameco do what they said they were going to do, not common for a public company, by the way, uh, with regards to the production that they shut in during periods of low prices. What they've said is that they are going to return that production uh, to market, which they can do fairly quickly, not five or six years, when they have enough price certainty in the term market that returning this uranium to production generates uh, an acceptable rate of return on capital employed for Cameco. Mm -hmm. The fact that they're able to lock it in and the fact that the market is able to see it and analyze it means that that revenue is going to be valued more highly in the market. And I think that's very important. You know, as we're as we're thinking about that outlook, Rick, there's another interesting question asking about how asking you to describe how you manage the whole Fukushima incident and basically what happened back then. How did people get out when there was a line at the exit? How did you sell, et cetera? He's curious to hear about your story in detail in regards to the market. Well, I think it's important to note that by the time Fukushima happened, that most of my position was gone. Uh, I like stories that are hated. When Paladin went from a dime down to a penny, that was a wonderful example of hate. Uh, And mercifully, I had enough courage to buy some stock at a penny and a half, not a penny. I didn't get the bottom, by the way. Mm -hmm. But by the time the stock was through $4 or $5, uh, it wasn't hated anymore. It was loved. And and I tell the story that the stock went from a penny and a half to $10. Now, the truth is by $10... I didn't have any stock left. By $6, I didn't have much stock left. (laughs) Because when the price of uranium went above $100, uh, actually, when it went above $70 for the first time, it was very clear to me that Kazatomprom was going to be able to deliver vast amounts of low-cost uranium uh, through in-situ recovery. And it was pretty obvious that the incentive price that they required was something like 50 U.S. dollars a pound in a market where uranium was selling for 70 or 80 dollars a pound. I never in my wildest dreams thought the uranium price would go to 140 dollars a pound. Uh, The consequence of that is that when the stuff was hated, when it was fully priced, and then when it went to overpriced, by the time Fukushima happened, I was mostly gone. I had some Cameco, to be sure. Uh, and what, what I did with my Cameco after Fukushima is I hit a very soft bid. Uh, there were a lot of people who were price sensitive. Uh, they said, you know, uh, just X number of weeks ago, the stock was at $50. Now it's at $52. Uh, when it gets back to 60, I'll sell it. <laughs> and that isn't a mistake that if you've been in the markets as long as I have, speculative markets, that isn't a mistake you make. 
if you are talking about a 40 or $50 stock, you don't quibble very much over a buck or two, particularly in a, in a circumstance where you see the world changing in front of you. Mm -hmm. You hit the bid. Uh, and if the bid doesn't accommodate your ask, you hit the next bid. And if that doesn't work, you hit the one behind that. Mm -hmm. That's what you do. That's kind of an interesting contrast to the world of gold and silver, where you could have this kind of life-changing event take place in, in an asset market. That's correct. I, I mean, everybody who speculates in uranium needs to keep in the back of their mind that a failure could happen again. And a failure will put uranium back in the deep freeze for another decade. And they need to decide for themselves uh, how comfortable they are with being put back in the deep freeze. Uh, it isn't a certainty. It isn't even a probability uh, because every generation nuclear plant gets better and better and better. And the safeguards that have been put in place post Three Mile Island, uh, pl uh, post Chernobyl, uh, post Fukushima, means that the probability of future failures becomes less and less and less. But everybody who plays the game has to understand that one of the ultimate risks has to do with another failure. And you need to accept that. Or as I say, you need to go to work for the post office. I like, we'll use that, uh, we'll use that analogy, um, if you will, for, for, you know, the, the certainty that, that people. Need. And, you know, Tom, in fairness, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a whole group of people in the world. Uh, you, you know, the winner is the person who gets what he or she wants. Uh, uh, I know in particular one postal worker who I was well, now a retired postal worker <laughs> who's made absolutely the right choice delivering the mail. Mm -hmm. uh, he gets decent wages, wonderful benefits, zero stress. Uh, in his particular job, uh, they decided that uh, the job was over when it was over, which is to say you get paid for eight hours. But if you can deliver all the mail in your sector in five and a half hours, you're done with it. You're done for the day. Mm -hmm. uh, for him, uh, that was a wonderful choice. People who have aspirations uh, of uh, a, a different type of material standard of living uh, can't choose that outcome. And I think that's the, the the best thing about the world is that we all can define success in our own ways, right? Yep, absolutely. Rick, do you think that there's enough uranium to somehow meet demand over the next decade? Or, I do. Or is that more of a an incentive price? Function, yeah, function of price. Yeah. Function of price, uh, there is a lot of undeveloped uranium. Uh, and there's a lot of undeveloped uranium in places that we've already identified, that we know how to get it. Uh, the idea that we have found every unconformity deposit in the Athabasca Basin is silly. Uh, the success of West, Next Gen and Fission uh, absolutely positively proved that. The uh, idea that we have exhausted either the ISR or the underlying hard rock uh, mineralization, Kazakhstan, is absolutely silly. There's lots of places in the world to look for uranium. The low-grade deposits in Namibia and Botswana, the grade-sensitive deposits, are absolutely vast. They don't work at $60 uranium. Uh, in particular, they don't work at $60 uranium with market interest rates. But if you give me $100 uranium uh, and you give me concessionary financing from the Industrial Commercial Bank of China because China needs access to the pounds, mm -hmm. or if you give me access to Daiichi Kangyo or Jokmek 
because the Japanese government needs the pounds. If you give me concessionary interest rates and 80 US dollars a pound or $100 US a pound, 10 years from now, there's a lot of uranium in the world. Mm-hmm. Rick, what are your thoughts on the viability of MNRs as opposed to SMRs in the future uranium landscape? Uh, I, I would like to duck discussions of technology. Okay. Uh, I have found that my own track record with regards to anticipating technologies uh, is much like the rest of the markets, which is to say unblemished by success. Uh, technological success or failure always confounds the market. And I'm sadly part of that market. Mm-hmm. Well, I, think that, uh, I, I think that in the intermediate term, which is to say for the next 10 years, that neither technology will be as important as conventional large-scale nuclear reactors. The real demand is going to come from the provision of non-carbon generating baseload power. Remember that a billion people on Earth have no access to primary electricity. Another two billion people on Earth have access to either unaffordable uh, or intermittent electricity. And the electricity that they have access to, at least from the view of the big thinkers, generates too much carbon. This is the perfect storm for utility-grade, baseload, non-carbon generating, big nuclear power plants that use lots of uranium. I think that, uh, you know, very small reactors in applications like powering uh, crude oil tankers uh, and, you know, very large uh, cargo ships certainly will make a difference uh, 10 years from now. What will make a difference between now and then are these monster reactors that the Chinese are building and the Indians are building and everybody else in the world wants to build. Mm-hmm. Kind of related to that, and I think I think this is an appropriate question considering your your ducking of the the last one. How do the how do SMR companies get financing without clarity of getting fuels? Oh, you know, uranium is suddenly politically correct. Uh, look at uh, our president, Biden, four years ago, he was vilifying people like me, people in the uranium business, profiteers on Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island. Now the moron wants to subsidize us. Uh, We've gone from from the scum of the earth to sort of torchbearers for American energy security. The stupidity of the political class, in fact, the stupidity of the voters knows no bounds. And I suspect that anybody who can tell a good story in public markets can tell a much better story in government markets. Mm -hmm. And so you will certainly see uh, a large group of people who parenthetically failed on House Street or Bay Street line up on K Street in Washington uh, with some wonderful technology, hopefully in an enterprise zone, uh, uh, around some technology that couldn't get funded in the market but could get funded in Congress, uh, particularly could get funded with the right level of campaign contribution and political support. Rick, I think we're going to have to do a, a part three uh, as we're as we're kind of coming up against time. But I'd like to end this one um, with a, a bit of a compliment and a, a part of a question. He said, your generic life advice is so good. I'd love to hear his suggestion on the day to day, how to build for the long term with little steps and attitude adjustments. Attitude adjustment is great. Uh, read, first of all. Uh, people say I have a good vocabulary. I wasn't born with it. <laughs> you know, uh, I try to read at least two, two books a month. Uh, but the truth is the best form of investing 
is investing in yourself. Knowledge, paradigm, technique, it can't be taxed. It can't be stolen. The product of it can be taxed or stolen. So invest in yourself. The second thing is if you desire material success, first of all, figure out what it is you want. (laughs) Many people wouldn't want to take as many chances, subject themselves to as much stress or work as hard as I've worked to attain the level of material success that I have been able to attain. But if you want to do, if if that's what you want to do, uh, it's really important that you educate yourself. It's really important, too, if you're building your own business, and this is going to sound really counterintuitive, to forget for a while about making money. Don't worry about it. Focus on delivering utility to your customer. Uh, That's what's important. Uh, When I stopped worrying about making money, which was 1990, uh, and started worrying about being the best me I could be and delivering more utility to my customer, whoever that customer was, however I defined that customer, Literally, Tom, within 90 days, uh, I enjoyed a a shift in income and a shift in network. By not worrying about the money, I started making more money than I, before that, sort of had a sense that I would ever make. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to do that. I think you building your channel, don't worry too much about the sponsorship revenue. Uh, Don't worry about that. Worry about making your channel the best it can be, not for everybody, but rather from the viewer that you aspire to serving. And the rest of it's going to take care of itself. And it's going to take care of itself in a much greater quantum (laughs) than you think possible right now. And I'm not saying this just to you. I'm saying it with you as the illustration, but I'm Mm -hmm. saying for everybody listening, define the market that you want to serve. And worry about serving that market. Uh, The revenue will absolutely positively fall in place if you do your job. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the the great thing about not having to take sponsors for this show. It uh, lets us lets us be impartial and and focus on on serving that uh, particular person that is curious and I think most importantly open minded. Because I, I I don't think it's useful to only look at one side of the coin. I want to look at why people are bearish on gold or uranium, whatever asset it might be. Rick, as you were explaining that answer, you said in 1990 that you had a, a major shift. What what precipitated that shift in your thinking? I think really my wife. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I'd gone through a period, which we've talked about before, the early part of the decade of the 80s, where I went from a very wealthy, <laughs> overconfident young man to having a negative net worth, mm-hmm. uh, hard on my psyche, harder yet on my pocketbook. A, a negative net worth is not something that I suggest people employ as a motivator, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did worry about uh, getting my net worth, first of all, back to zero and then higher. Uh, I, I measured myself in money and I didn't want to have to trouble myself looking on the right side of the menu where the prices were at mm-hmm. some point in time. And the consequence of that is that I was both productivity fo- uh, focused uh, and money focused through the decade of the 80s. Uh, my wife really said to me, uh, this is stupid. Uh, focus on being the best you that you can be. Uh, focus on delivering value for your customers. And by the way, focus on how you can deliver value to people who aren't your customers. 
better than the people who are serving them today, mm-hmm. you're going to be happier uh, and you're going to be more successful. And she was right. She was right in a way that neither of us understood at the time. I was going to say, how, where do you think that wisdom of her foresight at that point came from? I think she'd watched me thrash around, make money, make mistakes, be too aggressive for three years. Uh, she watched me interact with people and she observed the fact that I was pretty good and enjoyed certain things, uh, among them securities analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she just sort of thought that if I tried to do less, but tried to do what I did in much better fashion, and particularly if I worried less uh, in the near term about commercializing the output of the knowledge that I was assembling, that I would be much more efficient. Uh, worrying as much as I did at that point in time about monetizing what I was doing meant that I was spending probably 50% of my time monetizing knowledge rather than spending 100% of my time acquiring the knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, truly, when I turned that around, when I said, you know, I don't want to do 50 transactions or 100 transactions, I don't want to do any transactions with people that I didn't want to have dinner with. Uh, when that realization came to me, it was amazing how much time I had because I'd eliminated distractions. And it was amazing, too, how much more efficient I became uh, as a knowledge purveyor and as a knowledge implementer. And, Tom, it was immediate. Uh, I mean, it was 90 days well, maybe we can uh, we can dig into that. Uh, let's say that that life arc uh, a little bit more in in part three here. Um, Rick, why don't you give us a reminder of what you have, what um, events you have coming up that might help somebody increase their their knowledge base? Well, I always start people with Rural Investment Media. Uh, at Rural Investment Media, I personalize my knowledge. Any of your listeners or subscribers who go to ruleinvestmentmedia.com, if they list their natural resource stocks, I'll personally, for free, no obligations, rank them. Uh, I'll comment individually on issues if I think my comments have any value. That database, by the way, is upgraded all the time, updated all the time. And that's free. Go to ruleinvestmentmedia.com, list your natural resource stocks. Uh, it, It, being Rule Investment Media, is meant to be consumed in conjunction with the lessons at the Rule Classroom. At ruleclassroom.com, there's almost 200 hours of programming. Uh, How to analyze natural resource companies, case studies, all kinds of stuff. It's free. Uh, Invest in yourself and the rest of your investing becomes much more easily. It comes much more easily. It's absolutely free. The lessons that you learn at uh, Rule Classroom are meant to be employed at our uh, events. We have an upcoming event on January 6th, the Developers Boot Camp. In the boot camps, we spend eight or eight and a half hours delving very deeply into one aspect of natural resource investing. We did uranium. We did silver. You know, we did royalty and streaming. This one, we're doing pre-production companies, the development stage companies, how to analyze preliminary economic assessments, feasibility studies, how to understand the financial stack, how to understand on time, on budget, uh, 
nameplate capacity completion. The things that are necessary in the most dramatic addition of value in the resource space, $99 uh, money-back guarantee, gold-plated money-back guarantee. If you don't think you got your $99 worth, email me. I'll give you your uh, $99 worth. Importantly, I'm going to give you more information in eight hours than you can absorb. I guarantee it. But you'll have a year to replay the boot camp. Uh, I replay the boot camps that I produce an average of four times to absorb the work, uh, the knowledge that I get from the other speakers. And then once a year, we do a live conference in Boca Raton, uh, Florida. I believe this to be the finest uh, high-end retail natural resource conference on the planet. Again, absolute gold-plated money-back guarantee. And then finally, one more thing I'm doing commercially, as you can see by my shirt, I'm celebrating retirement by starting a new bank, a bank called Battle Bank. Uh, if you believe yourself uh, as a depositor that you should be paid interest on your deposits, <laughs> come see Battle Bank. If you think that you might want to save in currencies outside the dollar, if you think that some of your net worth should be diversified into euros or Swiss francs or yen, uh, we can do that. We can write certificates and deposits for you, federally guaranteed in 22 currencies. If you believe that your IRA should be your IRA rather than a receptacle for financial products by a mutual fund sponsor, we believe that too. We'll structure an IRA, IRA for you that owns an LLC, and you can invest in a franchise. You can invest in a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex. You can invest in private equity. We believe your IRA is your IRA. And finally, if you believe like we do, that bankers shouldn't be masters of a thousand industries, but rather the bankers should only lend money in industries that they know well, and that the best guarantee of a deposit is an intelligent loan, we are, among other things, going to be uh, gold bankers, silver bankers. Uh, we will lend against segregated holdings of gold and storage, the best possible collateral from my point of view. But one, paradoxically, gold that most bankers can't spell. <laughs> so if you care about any of that, go to Rural Investment Media. In the question or comment section, write bank or go to battlebank.com uh, and learn more about what I describe as a sanity-based bank. Excellent. Well, of course, for, for anybody that wants um, any of those things, we'll have all the links below um, as well as most of your stuff is all available at ruralinvestmentmedia.com. Rick, thanks so much for your time and pontificating on all these different subjects with me today. Tom, always a pleasure. I enjoy talking to you and I enjoy communicating at least indirectly with your audience. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.